You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thank you so much to Eileen and Jim for inviting me to speak today. I do agree. I think we have a great program and it's going to be really fun. And you have asked me to speak first about my very favorite topic, so I'm going to do my best not to go over too much, um, but I am going to be talking about infantile hemangiomas today. Um, I have one disclosure in that I am an investigator for Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, but it's not relevant to most of my talks today. So, I like to start with this slide, keep calm, it's just a birthmark. Well, that's true. In most cases, infantile hemangiomas may not need any treatment at all. Um, knowing how to recognize which ones are high risk and what to do is really you know, one of the points of, of the lecture today. And so I'm glad I'm here with you at the very beginning when maybe you've had your coffee, because some of the cases today are going to be a little more on the advanced side, which I think is great. So most of you know, and probably many of you take care of babies with infantile hemangiomas. They're present in about 4% of all babies, more common in females, more common in Caucasians, and low birth weight infants. That's the main actual predictor for hemangiomas. And they're made up of proliferating or growing endothelial cells. Most of the time, they're actually not really present at birth. They might just be a precursor lesion where they look kind of like an area of vasoconstriction or maybe some telangiectasias. Or oftentimes, parents will say, actually, it just kind of looked like a bruise. We thought the baby got it right you know, as they were being delivered. Um, all of you probably have read about and know about this rapid growth cycle that infantile hemangiomas take on um, over the first few weeks and months of life. And that's usually followed by a stabilization phase in the later part of infancy, and then ultimately involution or regression over many years. There's one thing that I thought um, is relatively new in our field, and I wanted to make sure that as PAs you are all really aware of this fact. And that is that the superficial aspect of infantile hemangiomas grows much more quickly than we initially thought. This nice study by two of our colleagues kind of looked through patient photos and independently verified that the most rapid time of growth for hemangiomas is actually five to eight weeks of life. So in a lot of cases, if you're going to treat, you need to treat early. And I want you to know that needle has moved. We don't want to see them now at four or five months because we have an FDA um, approved really successful therapy for hemangiomas in propranolol, which we'll be talking about a bit today. So make sure you just remember that if you see a hemangioma that's in a high risk area or you feel like you need to treat, you need to be referring these babies right away as early as four weeks. <clears throat> so Clinical practice guidelines are often put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and this one just hit the magazine, well, the, the journal, in January 2019. And it's a combined effort between multiple subspecialties, pediatric dermatology, pediatric plastic surgery, otolaryngology, and I think this is a great reference for you guys to kind of brush up on everything. And it really goes through that there are changes in what we now understand about the growth characteristics for hemangiomas. And that though most hemangiomas in the past haven't needed treatment, the needle has really moved in terms of high-risk areas, cosmetically sensitive areas, and these are kids that we want to be identifying and referring really early. They have a nice diagram here about the high-risk areas in the clinical practice guidelines and the indications for treatment. So ulceration, we, we all would, would treat if the baby has an open sore and it's you know, painful and can scar. 
periocular, mandibular, the so-called beard distribution hemangiomas, those ones are high risk too. Aesthetic compromise, so anything larger than a centimeter or so on the face may not necessarily leave normal appearing skin behind when it regresses. And so these are the ones we want to be thinking about treating before proliferation occurs. So we now have propranolol, and this is about you know, 11 years in the making now. We use it a lot. In fact, I like to say that I've never really met a hemangioma that didn't like propranolol. There are some outsider, outside liars, ones that are slower to respond, but most of the time, the babies respond extremely well to this medication. We're using topical Timolol now with some success off-labely to treat superficial hemangiomas. And just underscoring that we really rarely ever, if ever, use oral corticosteroids, which was the mainstay of treatment you know, 10, 20 years ago, um, or only under special circumstances when we need adjunctive therapy. So today I want to take you to, through these four cases. These are our high-risk babies that we want to be thinking about. What are we worried about? What are we doing? And when do we refer them? So this baby is actually one that I like to talk about because this is the month before propranolol was um, discussed in the New England Journal as maybe having a role in um, infantile hemangioma treatment. So this was my very first year of practice after fellowship. And this nine-week-old infant girl came to the office. She was a twin, otherwise healthy, with this really large, and I would call this segmental. Segmental hemangiomas occupy a territory of skin rather than just seeming to arise from a little pinpoint. Um, so this is really segmental of the upper extremity. And you can see here already that this hemangioma kind of has an ominous appearance to it. It's got this white-gray discoloration. It's got already a little crusting. And so we're kind of worried about this. And this was later described as the so-called biker glove hemangioma. Cool name, but it's a pattern that has been seen time and again. And I think it's an interesting pattern because where it stops just before the distal phalanges is probably telling us something about the time in embryogenesis when these, when these hemangiomas start to arise because your distal fingertips bud at a slightly later time than, um, than, than your arms. So probably a little earlier in development. And here's a few more pictures of this baby. So here's where we're gonna bring in our ARS. What is the most likely complication here, guys? Does this baby have arterial anomalies? Infe is infection a high risk? How about bleeding? Ulceration or overgrowth? Okay, great. Over half of you got this answer, so definitely um, strong work. So ulceration is what you need to be worried about at the top of your list with a hemangioma that looks like this. So by 12 weeks, this hemangioma had ulcerated down to fascia, and it got infected. <clears throat> it was extremely painful. I'm sure you can see and imagine that. Um, and it was refractory to everything. And I just threw this slide up because it was my first year of practice. I really threw everything at this. I did oral corticosteroids. We had to treat for the infection, basic wound care with dilute peroxide soaks, ointments, topical therapies that are traditionally utilized for um, infantile hemangiomas that are ulcerated, and pain control, which is something really important, and I'll talk about that. And finally, that June, the letter to the, to the editor in the New England Journal came out showing propranolol as a potential therapy. And I had tried everything, so I was like, I'll try it. Let's do it. 
And within one month, this hemangioma had completely healed and it had improved within seven days. This is the very first baby that I ever used propranolol on. Um, this segmental hemangioma ultimately healed with some scarring, but no contracture and overall, I think, a good outcome. But boy, those first several months of life were really tough for that family. So let's talk a little bit about ulceration, what to do, when to worry. So we know from prospective studies that large segmental hemangiomas are more likely to ulcerate. They ulcerate when they do, it's early. It's gonna be before four months of age. And they often will have that kind of white gray surface change to them. And that is the first sign that you should be worried about that hemangioma, because that is what is heralding the ulceration. High risk sites for ulceration, you might be, you know, might already understand that mucosal sites or sites that are prone to friction, lip, anogenital area, the neck, you know, maceration, all of those areas are really high risk. The other high risk site for ulceration are the cartilaginous sites, the ear and the nose, high risk, need propranolol, need early referral. So in one large study, about 16% of hemangiomas were associated with ulceration, but this was a referral center, so it's probably maybe a little lower than this. And those that were more likely to ulcerate were the larger ones, those that were segmental, those that had both a deep and superficial component. And I think that's worth kind of bringing out as a point. You really do need that bright red superficial component for the hemangioma to ulcerate. If it's just a deep, they're much less likely to ulcerate, in fact. And then if ulceration is going to occur, it occurs early. So now you've heard it twice. The growth phase is early, ulceration is early. Be able to pick out which hemangiomas are going to be the bad actors and get them in very quickly. Another point worth mentioning, and this is kind of along with the lesions that you might see in the diaper area, but sometimes ulceration is the first sign that you see um, as a hemangioma. And it would be very hard for anyone to pick out that that's actually an infantile hemangioma. It's an ulcer on the buttock. What could it be? Is it an infection? What's going on there? Um, and if the diagnosis is in question, something that is a bedside tool um, and is kind of a little clinical pearl of mine can help you determine um, if that's a hemangioma. Hemangiomas, by their very nature, have ar arterioles in them or even you know, ar arterial blood flow. So if you have a little bedside Doppler like this, this is like the old school $100, like you put it on and it sounds like the fetal heart rate monitor, you can actually hear the high blood flow. And so if there's an ulcer with high blood flow in the buttock area or other areas, you can feel more confident that that's probably an infantile hemangioma. And I'm gonna say a lot more about the Doppler in an upcoming lecture, so I don't wanna give too many things away, but here's an example of me looking at a deep hemangioma, another area where this Doppler can come in super handy because a deep hemangioma might not be obvious. It might just have that blue color and you might not know what a rapidly growing blue nodule is in a baby, and that can scare people. And so if you have this at your bedside and you pop it on and can hear high blood flow, there aren't too many other infantile tumors that would have that kind of blood flow. So more on that later. So ulceration is painful, it can bleed, um, it rarely but can become super infected, it will scar, and it's an extremely stressful time for families. So the whole point of this case presentation is so that you're able to better anticipate and potentially prevent the ulcer from happening. That's the ideal situation. Look for those white-gray hemangiomas, refer them early. Think about the high-risk locations, refer them early. Those are the ones you want to be looking at. If it's already ulcerated, um, 
management of ulceration is sort of multifaceted. You need to think about pain control because ulceration is painful. The babies are really quite miserable. They're crying a lot. It's super painful. Occluding the ulcer with moist ointments and dressings can help with pain control, as can a little bit of lidocaine ointment. Um, about a pea-sized amount four times a day has been shown to be safe and effective for helping with pain. So maybe before cleaning or when you're changing the dressing, that's really helpful. And then if the ulcer is crusted, we all know that that crust must come off. And that's the hard part, because when the crust comes off, it's actually more painful and might bleed a little more. But it does have to come off for that new epithelium to kind of fill in. So gentle debridement might include some dilute one-to-one -one peroxide soaks or gentle cleansing every day. Um, but those are sort of the basic tenets for managing ulceration. Topical therapies used in the past include metronidazole cream, bicalpermin gel or Regranex, and then of course medical therapy with oral propranolide. I'd say that's the gold standard and we can talk about some nuances there as, as, as well. And then pulse dye laser has been shown to expedite healing and improve pain control in some cases, and it can be used as an adjunct certainly. And we have some nice um, studies, including one randomized control trial that did show that propranolol treatment reduces the um, duration of the ulceration, but more importantly, can we prevent the ulcers from even coming with propranolol? I think the answer is yes. So here is a very high-risk um, hemangioma with that white-gray discoloration, crusting already a little bit ulcerated. It's not involving the cartilage of the ear, but it's certainly pushing that ear um, helix out. And you know, nice results ultimately to um, propranolol and went a little further on that. This is a great example of how babies are very upset and crying and really not happy with their ulcerated hemangioma and three weeks later um, into propranolol completely healed. This is the perfect situation that you wanna prevent the ulcer. So this baby at four weeks, we can anticipate would have gotten a lot more growth and invariably probably would have ulcerated on the lip. And after five months, we have a really nice result. And so now I don't have to be so afraid when I see the spiker glove hemangioma because I know now that if I just, you know, get, um, get started early with oral propranolol, we're going to have a really um, nice result. I'll just show a couple photos with the timolol. Um, at four weeks of age, this anogenital ulcer that is an infantile hemangioma heals completely with, with the topical timolol. So something to think about and tools in your toolbox. With Timolol, I will just say, however, that we need to be mindful that the Timolol solution is much more concentrated than Propranolol is when you give it orally. So one drop of that 0.5 gel forming solution um, is about four times as concentrated and would be absorbed um, in a large ulcer. So I don't tend to use the topical Timolol in any ulcer that's about a, over a centimeter. And there's a, there's a couple papers, I think, from, from CHOP on this. Um, but you would expect to get more absorption um, with, with the Timolol. So just a little word of caution. Okay, number two case. This is a five-week-old male. He was born at 36 weeks. Um, he has this enlarging vascular plaque of the perineum. He's fussy, there's some blood on the diaper, um, and this is his photo at four weeks. You can see the kind of plaque there um, with a little bit of peripheral pro proliferation extending onto the scrotum. And I would say that this is a different subtype of hemangiomas. You know, infantile hemangiomas present as superficial, mixed, deep, um, or combined. Um, and then this particular one, where it's not 
confluently um, proliferating is known as an infantile hemangioma with minimal or arrested growth, this sort of IH mag. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that later too. Um, and certainly on exam here, this is ulcerated already entirely around the perineum. And so he had an ultrasound of the spine, um, which was normal, and he was admitted for inpatient initiation of propranolol, had a great improvement. You know, at four weeks, you can see um, the improvement there. He had an ultrasound that was normal, but here's my question for ARS for you guys. Like, does this infant need an MRI as well? Yes or no? Okay, good answer, I like it. Yes, this baby does need an MRI too. So this baby would be at risk for underlying lumbar um, syndrome, which has gone by different um, um, acronyms in the past. So all of these refer to the same constellation of worrisome findings, including um, spinal dysraphism, tethered cord, um, lipomyelomeningocele have all been associated with these larger hemangiomas in this area. There's a prospective study that nicely talks about hemangiomas that are about 2.5 centimeters, 50%, that's really high, had some spinal anomaly, either tethered cord or lipomatous malformations. And the scary thing here is that ultrasound was not sensitive at picking it up. So although you can do it early and it might be reassuring, that baby still needs an MRI when it's safe to get one, when the risk for anesthesia is a little bit lower around you know, four to six months of age. Because this is something that can be corrected by neurosurgery. And so in my case, um, at six months, we did perform an MRI, which looked normal. There were a couple of you know, red flag things on there, but nothing that needed neurosurgical attention. However, this baby did persist with symptoms. He had symptomatic constipation. He had ongoing ulceration. And so ultimately, we decided to repeat the MRI. And this actually did demonstrate concern for spinal lipoma. And I have had this happen to me twice. So this is just a word of caution. If the MRI is negative at first, symptoms occur, you, you may need to repeat it. Um, so if there's persistent symptoms, repeat imaging is always recommended. So when do you worry with lumbosacral? In that area, that developmental hotspot, it's you know, after 2.5 centimeters or more, when they're large, when they extend right into the gluteal cleft and perineum, and of course, if there's other signs present in that area, hypertrichosis, aplasia cutis, anything else that might get you worried about other signs of spinal dysraphism. And I think that the presence of ulceration too, an aggressive and ongoing ulceration, is also a bit of a red flag. So refer early, spinal anomalies are present in a high proportion of patients and early neurosurgical intervention is usually really helpful in these cases. Okay, so we recommend an MRI ultimately for all of those. So our third case is an eight-week-old twin female, an X34-weeker preterm. She had a NICU stay of 17 days, but no ongoing complications. She's about 3.3 kilos, and she presents with all of these little bright red papules all over. There were about 30 of them. She's feeding, gaining weight okay. So what's the most likely complication in this setting with multifocal infantile hemangiomas? Got 
gosh, this is, a, this is great. 90% of you got this answer right. This is great. So hepatic hemangiomas are often associated with hepatic and um, multifocal presentation. So hepatic ultrasound is recommended in all children with five or more hemangiomas. And though symptomatic hepatic involvement is rare, some complications might include hypothyroidism and high output heart failure. And you might be thinking, why hypothyroidism? Well, it turns out that infantile hemangioma tissue actually produces an enzyme that is consumptive to thyroid hormone. So if you have an extra large hemangioma, and definitely if you have them in the liver, you should be looking at thyroid. Hepatic involvement is generally multifocal, so you might have three or four, and they're usually asymptomatic. In the rare case where they are diffuse or they're innumerable in the liver, um, that is the situation where in the pre-propranolol era, I actually saw two children die from this condition. They needed, you know, one was on the list for hepatic transplant because as those hemangiomas in the liver grew akin to the skin, the cutaneous hemangiomas, you know, they caused profound um, stress on the heart. So high output cardiac failure, abdominal compartment syndrome, the, the liver just got too big for the baby basically. Um, and it caused a ton of, of complications. Um, so though diffuse involvement is rare, it can be life-threatening. And we just mentioned that. And so, Early detection and the, the fact that you all in this room are aware that five or more hemangiomas need a liver ultrasound is a huge win for us because um, certainly this can be prevented now in the era of propranolol. So this patient actually did receive an ultrasound um, right away and even I can see this, like I am no radiologist, it all looks great to me, but even in here you can see that her liver has multiple little black kind of hypoechoic voids there and three months after initiation of propranolol, they were all gone. So this is a really great story with, a, with a, a nice happy ending because we know that outcomes have really improved. Um, there's a registry that's kept at Boston Children's and when I was there, we were enrolling people into the registry. And it turns out that since these prospective studies and since we're identifying these kids early, um, really the, the multifocal and the diffuse have really become um, very rare. Uh, the mortality used to be 28%. Now, I don't think they've had any deaths in the last five to 10 years, so this is a great story. Um, this got written up in one of our University of Minnesota um, blog sites. The mom was really you know, happy with, uh, with this outcome, and so this is little, the little girl um, looking very unimpressed and you know, really not bothered by the fact that her liver was full of hemangiomas just a few months ago. Okay, so last case today, another high-risk one, when to worry and what to worry about. So this is a five-week-old with a large facial birthmark, rapidly growing, proliferating since birth. There's periorbital involvement. There's nasal tip involvement. And um, prenatally, a, a cerebellar cyst was noted um, on prenatal ultrasound. And you can actually see this midline scar right here on the upper lip. And that really kind of indicates that this hemangioma was proliferating in utero and probably ulcerated in utero, which is interesting. A couple more photos here. And I'd like to say that, you know, having mentioned that hemangioma with minimal or arrested growth type, where they're not confluently bright red, I would say that this subtype is more prone to complications and tends to be more segmental. And we can see that, obviously, here in this case. What are we worried about? We're worried about face syndrome. And face syndrome is the constellation of findings that include brain abnormalities like posterior fossa malformations, infantile hemangiomas, arterial and 
aortic anomalies and cardiac anomalies as well as eye anomalies. Um, <clears throat> I think this number is a little bit high, but in one of the prospective studies done by the hemangioma investigator group, they estimate that approximately 2% of patients with infantile hemangiomas have face syndrome. I think that's probably a little overestimate um, and, and probably referral bias within the study. The female to male ratio is really high here, higher than um, even infantile hemangiomas with seven to one um, of patients affected with face are female. And unlike the infantile hemangioma counterpart, face, is, face syndrome or association is not associated with prematurity or low birth weight. We still don't know the cause. Many smart people are looking for this gene, but we still don't have it. Um, and so we all think, like many of the vascular um, malformations and tumors where we've been able to identify genes that are somatic mutations in um, genes within the RASMAP kinase pathway, it's probably in this pathway, but we still don't know. So importantly, the workup for face syndrome can get pretty complicated, and I would recommend immediate or very prompt referral to pediatric dermatology who is very familiar with this, because what we don't want is to have to sedate babies twice. And so an incomplete workup can be really difficult for us. So this is the time when you're paging your local, you know, uh, your, your group that you're working with. If someone could page the local pediatric dermatologist and kind of get things going soon. But I think the workup um, is really important to be done right the first time because you need an MRI and an MRA of the head and neck, and that requires sedation in most infants. There are some lucky centers that can do a wrap and feed and put them through, but not, not every center can do that. An eye exam and then consideration for thyroid tests is also really important, as is an echocardiogram to pick up the um, potential cardiac anomalies like aortic arch abnormalities or COARC. And then let's talk about propranolol. These are the kids we really shouldn't be going gung-ho in right away before we kind of see what, what's going on in the brain because there is that theoretic risk that the cerebrovascular anomalies that occur with face, meaning that if the vessels are a little bit smaller or they're kind of torturous, um, we might be theoretically setting that child up for predisposition to stroke if we start a blood pressure lowering agent right away. So these are just special considerations. Most patients are very safely treated. This is more of a theoretic consideration, but still, I usually will get the whole workup if I have a high-risk patient like this. Um, one word that I wanted to mention too about face that's come um, you know, to light in the last few years is that you can have face syndrome, the cerebrovascular anomalies or arterial anomalies, even in pa babies that aren't so obvious you know, with the infantile hemangioma on the face. So if it's segmental scalp, if it's in the eye, retroorbital, or very large ones on the upper torso and arm, those still deserve investigation as well, and there's some nice references there for you. Some emerging associations with face, the longer we know about this and are following the children, the more we're gaining information. Um, you, we need to follow these children for neurodevelopmental anomalies. Hearing loss has been something that's been commonly reported. Endocrine dysfunction, the common theme, the hypothyroidism, growth delay, growth hormone deficiency, and then dental anomalies. So our baby did have face in the setting of her known um, cerebellar cyst. Um, her MRI and MRA did show some cerebellar asymmetry, some smaller intracerebral vessels, and then a little bit of the hemangioma extending into the cerebellar pontine angle. And so here she is at five weeks, 
And after one week of propranolol, you can see a marked difference. I love these pictures because you can just see like what's happening here with one week. How can this get so small? We still don't know the exact mechanism of action for propranolol, but I have a feeling that if we find the gene, we will probably have more insight into how this and why this is working. And so this baby has multidisciplinary care with neurology, pediatric dermatology, and ophthalmology. She's doing very well. So take home points for face. The full workup includes MRI and MRA of the head and neck, echocardiogram, ophthalmology, and be aware that large or segmental hemangiomas of the scalp or torso might also share some of these same underlying anomalies. So in summary, the growth phase of infantile hemangiomas is earlier than we thought, about four weeks of age, so refer um, very early um, if you're worried about hemangiomas and think they need treatment. Ulceration is the most common complication. Lumbosacral hemangiomas require an MRI of the spine in most cases. Multifocal is heralding hepatic involvement in many cases. And face association can occur with large and segmental infantile hemangiomas of the head and neck. So thanks so much. We'll turn it over to Jim. <clears throat> I'm going to see if I can plug this back in. I got up and stood on the mic and it um, unplugged. Cool. I'm just going to use this mic. Um, okay. So uh, we're going to go directly into other vascular tumors. So um, uh, my job is to kind of go through everything that's not a hemangioma. Um, we see lots of uh, um, things that come into our office that are kind of labeled as hemangiomas that actually have much different implications than hemangiomas do. So um, uh, these are going to be some things that are a little bit more esoteric. Hemangiomas happen to about 4% of all children, and these happen much more rarely, but they're also um, potentially uh, as, if not more, important. So um, I have no relative and conference of interest. What we're going to go through is congenital hemangiomas, tufted angiomas, um, coposiform hemangioendotheliomas, and spindle cell hemangiomas. Uh, and the reality is this ISFA classification is really helpful. So this is freely available. This is the International Society for Vascular Anomalies. If you're ever looking at something and you're not sure what it is as a vascular lesion, this website is really helpful because it goes through all the whole classification. It's all freely available, and it talks about um, everything from venous to lymphatic to um, other types of vascular anomalies all in one. It shows you some uh, um, of the genes that are associated and it can kind of point you to resources for looking them up. So we're going to talk about these six lesions. Um, so uh, all look a little bit red, all are a little vascular looking, um, but all are different and, uh, and not actually hemangiomas, even though they all get referred as, um, as types of hemangiomas. So this is a congenital hemangioma, and the big difference is if you showed me this picture at three or four months of age, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you for sure that this was not an infantile hemangioma, but history makes the biggest difference. The first few days of a, of a, a child's birth, um, uh, having gone through this, um, and I'm the dude, um, parents have no recollection of what happened for the first 48 to 72 hours because they haven't slept in six months, and then they haven't slept at all in 48 hours. So when you ask parents whether something was there at birth, they always reflectively want to answer, of course it was there at birth, I probably just don't remember. And for infantile hemangiomas, they're really not fully formed at birth. They're not there in any major way, whereas congenital hemangiomas are truly there right at birth. Um, so you have to ask the question very specifically, like, did they hand you the baby and there was a hemangioma on the baby? And people are like, no, I think it showed up at the first pediatrics visit. Um, and that's much more typical for a regular hemangioma. Congenital hemangiomas are there day one. They are fully formed.
transformed, and they basically either stay the same or get better really rapidly. Um, the genes for these have been found, so hopefully there will be a treatment that's actually better in the future, um, but for now, there's actually no specific medical treatment for this. Propranolol does not work. The only thing that works is either waiting them out or cutting them out, um, and there are some risks to them. So these have been reclassified a little bit. So the original um, is called a rich or a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma. It was then noticed that some of them don't involute at all. So there's now this term a niche and non-involuting congenital hemangioma. And I'll tell you that the majority of them are now called a pitch, um, which is a partially involuting congenital hemangioma. And what that means is you're born with a fully formed thing. It gets a little better, but it doesn't fully go away. And you still may end up needing to have it cut out at some point. So what's the major um, risk? The major risk is if, if you have too much heart flow um, going to this vascular lesion over a long period of time, it can put strain on the heart or they can ulcerate. If you look back at this hemangioma, if you look at the one that's in the top left corner for you, if that ulcerates, that is a catastrophe. Um, it will ulcerate right into big arterial flow within the scalp, um, and so these need to be watched really closely. If they start bleeding, I generally just have people come to the emergency room because they can actually pump arterial flow. That is generally not true for regular hemangiomas, but congenital hemangiomas are, are, can be high risk. Um, so again, what's the treatment for them? Uh, they generally uh, either partially go away on their own and you can leave them alone, or they eventually need either laser or surgical therapy if there's anything that's left. This is a classic non-involuting genital hemangioma. When you look clinically, you usually see big broken blood vessels over top of them, so big telangiectatic blood vessels, and then a rim of vasoconstriction. So if you look around the edge of this, um, you can see this rim of whiteness that's here. I'll use the mouse to point. Um, and that rim of vasoconstriction is really classic for a uh, congenital hemangioma. Uh, this is just one case showing that they can have really big venous lakes inside of them, they can have arterial flow inside of them, um, and really they can bleed really extensively. So if you have someone who has a rich, or they have a big rich, and it has any of that gray component that um, Sheila was talking about that makes it kind of at risk for ulceration, you want to be really careful with them. Uh, this is someone on the scalp. Um, so as you know, if you've done a lot of procedures and biopsies, scalps bleed like crazy. They have tremendous blood supply. So if you have a hemangioma, really of any type, that ulcerates through the skin in the scalp, it can just find a scalp artery, and those can actually pump blood out. So beware of scalp hemangiomas. Um, this was one of our patients who uh, came in at eight months, uh, and she had had a hemangioma that was not treated that's on the left. This is about an hour before this thing ulcerated, and you can see that black crust that's on there. That black crust came out, and the blood literally, mom said, spurted across the room. Um, the child bled five grams of hemoglobin out, actually had to be resuscitated, and medevac to the hospital. That does not usually happen with hemangiomas, but if you have a scalp hemangioma and the parents are telling you that it's bleeding, you should take it really seriously, even if it's it's a regular infantile hemangioma. All right, so uh, first uh, ARS question, what is your management for this four-hour-old with a red patch? So A, biopsy, B, laser, C, check platelets, and D, no therapy. So again, these are esoteric. That's awesome. I'll tell you that what my response was. I went and I saw this patient with a fellow, and, and um, what we actually did was um, look at it and go, I don't know what that is, um, so we're going to follow it up the next day. Um, and it had this kind of bruised looking to it, uh, or bruised look to it, so um, we wondered about something called a tufted angioma. 
And this is actually a tufted angioma. They kind of look like port wine stains, but they don't respect the midline. They've got a little bit more texture to them, and they'll often wax and wane a little bit, where they'll get a little bit more bruised, a little less bruised. They'll have a little bit of kind of firmness to them. And port wine stains are definitely a patch where you cannot feel it at all. It's completely flat with the skin. These have a little bit more texture, a little bit more of kind of the feeling there's, there's something um, of depth underneath the skin. So why are we checking platelets? Because we're worried about this thing called Kassebach merit phenomenon. Kassebach merit phenomenon is where you bleed into a vascular lesion because it's uh, consuming the platelets and it's creating clots within there. Um, so you get DIC within the vascular lesion. This only happens with tufted angiomas and kaposiform hemangioendotheliomas. It does not happen with regular hemangiomas. Um, and sorry about all the words soup because all these words sound so similar. It's actually really hard to say all these words back to back and actually sound intelligent. Um, but regular hemangiomas do not do this. Tufted angiomas do, and kaposiform hemangioendotheliomas do. And the treatment for them, um, aspirin works fairly well, but what's been really uh, kind of eye-opening for us is that the treatment for many vascular things is actually now serolimus. And so we don't actually usually give serolimus in our practice, but we have oncologists who do, and it's good for you guys to know about because you're the entryway into the medical system for them. Um, and even uh, um, a lot of dermatologists don't actually know that there are treatments for these that, that actually work fairly well. Um, so this was actually the um, child on aspirin. Uh, the aspirin stops the um, platelets from causing clots, uh, and with that, the, um, the tufted angioma fades out completely uh, and gets a lot better. She has to actually stay on aspirin for a while in order to have it maintain, um, and it works um, really well. So some of these can be congenital. Um, often uh, they're on upper limbs. The risk of Kassebach merit is a little bit lower, um, but kaposiform hemangioendotheliomas, the risk of Kassebach merit is much higher. So again, if you look in the bottom left corner of this, you see this kind of innocuous-looking purple patch that looks similar to the patient I just prevented, presented, and then all of a sudden it gets really, really hugely swollen. This is a huge clot forming within the vascular lesion, and the risk of bleeding in this child and, and potentially death is much higher. Um, so these are ones that are really important to, look, to know about. Parents will think that they're hemangiomas or capillary malformations, but they can bleed into them really quickly, uh, and this can be a medical emergency. Um, again, this is serolimus. This is a child, obviously, at the end of the spectrum who bled into their um, kaposiform hemangioendothelioma. This is a massive bleed. Um, and with serolimus, the spot eventually ends up actually getting almost all the way better, um, which is really a miracle. Um, before, we really, the treatments uh, were not nearly as effective um, than uh, serolimus. All right, so a little bit more clinically relevant to you. This is, um, these are microcystic lymphatic malformations. So the question is kind of what are your options for treating these? Um, and in the past, people have done all sorts of things for this. So how can you tell it's a microcystic lymphatic malformation? It literally looks like little fish eggs sitting on top of the skin. So you see these little kind of clear vesicles sitting up here. They're all clustered around. Um, they kind of leak fluid every once in a while. They bleed every once in a while. They almost look like you could pop them, um, and they're sitting up superficially in the skin. But unfortunately, they're probably the tip of the iceberg. There's probably a much bigger lymphatic abnormality underneath of this, and this is just what's bubbling to the surface. So in the past, people tried to cut them out, but if you think about it, if you have an iceberg that's trying to grow to the surface and you cut the top off of it, it's just gonna continue growing back to the surface over and over. Uh, and so um, with that, cutting them out is really unsuccessful. Lasering is usually fairly unsuccessful, but it turns out topical serolimus is actually really effective. This was the first patient I treated, um, and 
and uh, he was actually, you can see the huge scar in, his, in uh, his back. This is his perianal area. He had had his entire buttocks kind of like uh, um, replaced with a huge flap um, as someone had kind of chased their tail trying to cut out a lymphatic malformation. Uh, he was actually heading back for like his fourth surgery and we decided to try some topical serolimus. Uh, and topical serolimus, although it didn't take it away completely, this is only after six weeks, it made them all flatten out to the skin and actually made them stop bleeding so he didn't need any surgery anymore. He's literally lost a follow-up for me because he never needed any more medical therapy after that because his pediatrician just continues his topical serolimus um, and he hasn't needed surgeries after having had major reconstructions of his perianal area. So this is clinically useful. Topical serolimus should become part of your practice if you see microcystic lymphatic malformations. They can be really annoying to people. They kind of ooze to the surface. They can bleed um, and, uh, and they're really hard to treat with anything surgical and serolimus is usually really effective. All right, sorry, I put a lot of arrows in here. I promise it's getting better. This is another super rare one, but one that's really important to know about. Um, this is a child who has red patches that kind of look like they're port wine stains, but they're not. Kind of look like they're hemangiomas, but they're too flat. They've got a little bit of kind of um, purple or crusting over top of them, and the child is having GI bleeding. GI bleeding in a four-month-old is fairly uncommon. The two of them go together because these vascular lesions also live um, inside the bowel and because the child can have massive thrombocytopenia. So this is something, again, that's very rare, but your job as the dermatologic practitioners is to say, I'm looking at this, it doesn't look like the regular hemangiomas that I see, it doesn't look like the regular capillary malformations I see, it must be one of those weird things, I'm going to refer it to someone else um, in order to kind of see it. Um, and a lot of the times when we first saw these, we were like, we don't know what this is, but it's obviously something bad. And fortunately, over the last couple of years, somebody kind of clarified what this is, which is called multifocal lymphangiomatosis with thrombocytopenia, or MLT. Um, and the point of it is that you have really low platelets um, and, uh, and these kind of vascular-looking lesions. It has a huge mortality, and surprise, surprise, it actually gets treated with serolimus. Um, serolimus is, is, again, really effective for a lot of vascular things. Basically, in the world of vascular anomalies, you have, if it's a hemangioma, you give it propranolol. If it's everything else, you give it serolimus, um, and you can treat almost anything. Um, this is one that was referred to us as a hemangioma. It was uh, ultrasounded as a hemangioma. It was MRI'd and read as a hemangioma. It was biopsied and read as a pathologist with, as a hemangioma. I apologize to the pathologist for what I'm about to say, but the reality is if you send a dermatopathologist an answer, they will usually send you back and be like, yeah, I guess that's probably right. Um, and the reality is if you send them the wrong answer and you kind of like hamstring them, they might give you back the wrong answer. So when you send something to a dermatopathologist, give them a differential, tell them you're not sure what it is. This was sent in as, this is a hemangioma, and the dermatopathologist sent it back as like, yeah, I guess so. Um, and it was before the stains were there that uh, kind of could tell for sure whether it was one or not. What's weird about this, it's ulcerating through the skin. It is not respecting any of the tissue planes. It is firm. When you feel it, it's like rock hard, and it outgrew everything around it. And it's not like it ulcerated in this kind of like, you know, gentle way into the skin. This literally erupted out of the skin, and this is a fibrosarcoma. Fibrosarcomas and rhabdomyosarcomas are not that uncommon in children, and they present looking like hemangiomas to everyone else, 
but because you guys see a lot of hemangiomas, you look at it and you're like, it just doesn't look right. If you see something that looks like a hemangioma, but you're like, it just doesn't look right, feel it. If it's extra firm or if it's just acting in a funky way, do imaging, um, have someone else biopsy them, by the way. You should not biopsy vascular lesions, um, just coming from experience. I've seen people get um, a lot of bleeding. They're made of blood vessels, um, so biopsying into that can be a little bit dangerous. Um, and, uh, and, but again, this just doesn't look right. This is another one where like, it's purple and it's there in a baby, so the rest of the pediatric world is going to say this is a hemangioma, but again, you look at it and you're like, kind of doesn't look like a hemangioma. It's kind of firm, it's rapidly growing, it just doesn't respect any of the tissue planes. I can't tell where it starts and stops. This is another fibrosarcoma. Really important to be aware of. These often will prevent, present to us first, um, again, because they're being referred in as hemangiomas. All right, capillary malformations. So the world of capillary malformations has changed a lot in the last five years because there's been a lot of information about which capillary malformations mean which syndrome. This again becomes a little bit of alphabet soup, and I'm, I apologize for all the information that, that's um, in these next few slides, but it's all summarized on the International Society for Vascular Anomalies website, um, and it's a very nice reference to kind of go back to if you're not sure which association is which in children. So I'm gonna point out the most important ones. So so capillary malformations, they are there at birth, they're completely flat, and then they do nothing. So they don't grow, they don't ulcerate, they might get a little bit more purple, a little less purple when children are crying because they're made out of blood vessels and you just kind of send more blood there, but they don't do anything in terms of like growth or change um, in almost all cases. Um, so uh, this was a really nice paper um, that was uh, put out by um, a big group. Um, whenever Alona Frieden is on a paper, everyone just says it's Alona's paper. There was a whole bunch of other really smart people who were on here, um, and she gets credit for everything, as she should. She's like the godmother of pediatric dermatology. Um, but uh, um, vascular stains all have different reasons. We're going to go through each different one of these and kind of decide what to think about with the babies. So um, uh, this is uh, nevus simplex, port wine stains, reticulated port wine stains, geometric capillary malformations, and then thumbprint capillary malformations. Uh, this, again, is the ISFA website. Again, too much information to memorize. None of us memorize all of this. We go back to the website, we refer to it, and try to decide who's to, who to worry about. So this is the kid you almost never worry about. You walk in the room, you've got a really cute baby, the parents are like super concerned because they have vascular stains all over their face and you can tell them generally these are going to get a lot better if not completely go away. They all come with like cool little names like angels kisses and stork bites. I always tell parents like that's not how the baby was actually delivered. Um, some of the guys are like, really? Um, anyway, so uh, stork bites on the lower back, along the back, and they tend to be on the midline except for the eyelid ones, they tend to be these kind of faint purple, um, uh, just slightly um, uh, patchy spots, and they again tend to fade over time. Some of them aren't going to fade entirely. If you see this child, they may end up needing some laser therapy over time, um, and you kind of want to prepare parents that if by a year it's not a lot better, they may end up wanting laser. Um, so the only time to worry about them is if there's something else wrong with the child. If they're dysmorphic in a way, if you look at the child and you're like, cute baby, but why can't you put your tongue back in your mouth, um, which really does happen, then they might have something called Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. So you look at them, you say, do you have any other kind of dysmorphic features? Um, do you have any limb anomalies? Do you have anything where you've got a really big head? Do you have a really big tongue? If they have any of those features, then you might want to send them to genetics. 
This is the regular port wine stain you're kind of used to thinking about. It's got a midline cutoff and it's classically associated with Sturge-Weber syndrome. Sturge-Weber syndrome is um, something that gets confused with face syndrome all the time, but this is with a capillary malformation. Face syndrome is with a hemangioma. Again, midline cutoff there at birth, completely flat, and the risk is both ophthalmologic as well as neurologic. You can get seizures, you can get glaucoma, and they should be sent to an ophthalmologist like that day. If you saw this, this person as a baby and they have a port wine stain that's around the eyelid or around the eye, they should see the ophthalmologist emergently because they can have congenital glaucoma and they can lose their vision really quickly. And then over time, they should see neurology and we kind of consider whether to image them. Um, who to screen for Sturge-Weber, this was a, a kind of a confusing paper, but the bottom line was if it involves the forehead, so if you have a, a, a port capillary malformation in, or port wine stain that involves the forehead, then you worry about Sturge-Weber syndrome. And if it involves the forehead plus other stuff, so if you have more kind of extending down the cheek, or if you have a big one in the center part of the forehead that extends down the cheek, um, then you worry about them a little bit more. These are reticulated port wine stains, and these are probably much more common than people give them credit for. They're kind of the vague port wine stain that you can't quite tell where it starts and stops. They, by the way, get eczema in them really easily. If you have a child who has really recalcitrant eczema at the age of six or eight months in one random leg or one random arm, just make sure it's not sitting on top of a little port wine stain, because the port wine stains get eczema really exuberantly. And these are ones that are associated with more genetic syndromes if they're widespread. These should be referred to a geneticist to kind of figure out if there's anything else going on with them. Often there's nothing else, but some of these kids have toes that are stuck together. Some of them have big heads. They can be at risk for um, other internal anomalies, depending on how widespread this is, and it gets clarified with derm and genetics. Um, this is the type of capillary malformation that's associated with lymphatic malformations underneath of it. So you, you learn about this term called Klippel-Chernani syndrome, and people always worry about these kind of broad capillary malformations. This is not the site that's associated with anything underneath of it that's a, um, a venous or vena lymphatic malformation. The type that's usually associated looks very, very purple. You have a very sharp cutoff. There's almost, often these little blebs over top of it, and this person, again, should be referred to like a vascular anomaly center because there's lots of imaging and follow-up that needs to happen with them. And then this is the most important clinical one. So this is the one that goes under the radar that you're probably seeing every once in a while. And these kids usually come in for molluscum because like everyone comes in for molluscum and they happen to have this also. So the parents are like, they've got molluscum, it's really annoying. And by the way, they have a couple of these red little patches all over the body. They look like thumbprints. They look like cafe au lait, except they're red and vascular. So they're not actually brown. Um, the very first person I got referred was uh, actually from our neurofibromatosis clinic, they said, we've got a child with cafe au that are red. That's not a thing. Um, but the red cafe au uh, are often these little capillary malformations. They're little oval, round capillary malformations. And why do they matter? They don't matter in the skin. The skin almost never causes a problem, but they can have arteriovenous malformations in their brain or in their spine. And again, we are the gateway to get them to proper care and monitoring because there's nothing else wrong with the children. They look completely 
fine usually, um, but these also tend to run in families. So you'll ask and like the kid has it and maybe his dad has it and maybe grandma has it also, and maybe someone had a really early stroke and no one could ever explain it. This syndrome is something that you definitely want to be aware of because of the fact that you can do something about it for the children. So again, these children get genetic testing. It's a RASA1 mutation or something called an Efren B4 mutation, and they should get um, uh, followed with imaging. It's not our job really in dermatology to know everything about all of these syndromes. What it is our job to do is to walk in the room and be like, that's not a hemangioma, or I heard about this thing once at this conference, and this guy said something, and then I looked it up, and I was like, wow, I can save this baby's life, and that's pretty cool. All right, so typocapillary malformations. Nevis simplex, um, very common, usually not associated with anything. Port wine stains, usually mid, um, midline cutoff, um, flat patches from birth. If they're involving the forehead, you worry about Sturge-Weber syndrome. Widespread port wine stains, think about genetic syndromes. Dark purple port wine stains with kind of like growths over top of them. You think about lymphatic malformations underneath of them or venolymphatic. And then these oval thumbprint ones, you think about AVMs. I'm aware that this is a ton of information. It's like everything vascular in a small um, space, but having seen these a little bit and understanding that this field is much broader than just hemangioma is really important because you guys are the referral network. And this is a pathway that makes me want to puke when I look at it, um, but the reality is what this is is a ton of um, proteins being extressed and the pathway um, of this overgrowth pathway, which includes things like Clove syndrome and MCAP, which are um, all, a lot of these are associated with capillary malformations. The final common pathway of this is mTOR, which is the target of rapamycin or serolimus. And so the point of this is we actually have treatments for lots of these overgrowth syndromes because serolimus actually um, uh, targets the final part of this pathway. And so this is a patient who had a huge lymphatic malformation. We never used to think that these could be treated at all. Um, and the reality is that they would be cut out or surgically excised. Um, this is a brain over here. This is a lymphatic malformation. The first couple of times I presented this, I thought this was the brain. That's not. That's a lymphatic malformation. Um, and then after the serolimus, this is the brain, and this is the lymphatic malformation. So serolimus is really, really helpful. It's not something we should be giving, but it's something we should know about so that we can refer them to the correct people. So again, riches or niches are congenital hemangiomas. You've got reticulated capillary malformations. You've got tufted angiomas, CMAVM syndrome, MLT, fibrosarcoma. Not really um, important to make sure that you know everything about each one of these. It's just really important that you know that they're not hemangiomas and that you get them to a vascular anomaly center so that they can help figure out what else is going on with the children. Cool. So most lesions can be clinically diagnosed at least to say that they're not hemangiomas and you're worried about them a little bit more. And really the genetics of these tumors has actually led to a lot of future therapies that are going to be really interesting, um, which although we may not be giving, we are the gateway to kind of get these kids into the proper care. So thank you. And I think we'll take questions on both um, things at the same time. So thank you. Oh, I think this is the super awkward time where we stand here while you evaluate us. the overall performance of the speaker. In case you're wondering, we are going to talk a How whole lot about session eczema, warts, psoriasis, all the things that we actually see on a daily basis also. The entire day won't be things that are vocabulary lessons for us as we're actually saying them. Um, because, as a result uh, of this um, program, but we got you when you were the most caffeinated. Um, so.
And again, we, although we see a lot of these complicated things, like 60% of our practices still acne, eczema, warts, molluscum, hemangioma, so we see a lot of the kind of common things also. Um, cool. Okay, oh, cool. other questions? Okay. Do you ever see blood pressure issues with Tim Wall? Um, I have actually not been checking blood pressure regularly on most of the patients with Timolol, um, but what I will tell you is that even with systemic propranolol, the change in blood pressure is actually really low over time. It ended up in the New England Journal study when they looked at all the babies' blood pressures. It was only like two millimeters of mercury that, that it was different on, on the propranolol. So propranolol is not really having a huge impact on babies' blood pressure. In fact, they're pretty good at keeping up their blood pressure. I think that, you know, how I use Timolol has changed a little bit, just given the fact that I do think there can be some absorption. Um, I think that what we're learning is that when the babies have the thinnest plaques of hemangiomas, the precursor lesions, ones that are not ulcerated and not like really hypervascular bright red, though that's really the, the optimal time to use the Timolol because I think that, that there were some prospective trials done that the data will be coming out shortly um, that the thicker and more vascular it is, it kind of makes sense that the more would be absorbed. So, yeah. yeah. The, the only thing I have seen is low blood sugar. Um, yeah. So you have to be a little careful with all hemangiomas and blood sugar. I think this is on. Um, so I tell people the same precautions I tell them with propranolol. If you're going to put timolol on a hemangioma, just make sure the child has eaten. And then pharmacists will always tell people to put timolol in the eye. You just yeah. have to tell them that's not what you should do with it. It's labeled as an eye drop. It goes on the hemangioma. People sometimes kind of forget that. They do. There can be some confusion there, especially as this is a new thing, and we are prescribing the eye drop off-label, so um, there can be confusion. Um, sure, certainly there can be, you know, there, there's utility in doing a skin biopsy. Oh, is this for, for hemangiomas? For, like, if you're not sure, a biopsy can be helpful because they can be differentiated from other um, non hemangioma vascular tumors by that GLUT1 stain. So, infantile hemangiomas almost universally express GLUT1. So, if you're not sure, it's still okay to, to, to do a biopsy. I think that's completely reasonable. And we've all been fooled here and there. But I would say it would be really rare, the, the patient that would need a biopsy. And I would just echo Jim, they will bleed. And then for the next one, um, most hemangiomas are gone not by two years of age. They actually can go away all the way up to 10 years of age. The biggest study showed that 90% of them were gone by four. I actually think that's optimistic. Um, so I tell people by five, six, seven, your hemangioma is going to be a lot better, but it may still do some going away by the age of 10. You always want to under-promise and over-deliver. So you can tell them it's going to be gone by 100, and then when it's gone by 10, they'll be really excited about that. Um, but if you tell them it's going to be gone by two, they're going to show up to you at 24 months and one one day and be like, why is my child hemangioma not gone? Um, so under promise and over deliver. Um, Serolimus topically probably doesn't have any major side effects. We all use it a lot off-label in pediatric dermatology. We use it for angiofibromas on the face. We use it for microcystic lymphatic malformations. You can use anywhere in the range from 0.1 all the way up to 1% serolimus. So if you're worried about it, you could use a lower percentage. They all seem to be actually fairly effective. It is certainly off-label um, and can be very expensive. Yeah. Exactly. Next question. So I think we'll do like one or two more really quickly and then we'll um, uh, proceed on. Oh, was do that I the last of the questions? I think, I think that's the last of the questions. Okay. Cool. Great. So um, yeah, Leanne's going to come and talk to us about, um, oh, sorry, Sheila's going to come and talk to us about eczema and then Leanne's going to talk about the eczema also. Okay, great. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource 
for the Society of Dermatology PAs.